Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Uh, we've been doing these SALT Talks, which are a series of digital interviews with leading investors, creators, and thinkers during the work from home period to replicate the experience that we bring at our global SALT conferences, uh, which of course are on hiatus uh, during the pandemic. Um, what we really try to do at these conferences is provide a platform for big, important ideas that we think are changing the world and also provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts, which is what we have today. Uh, we're very excited to welcome Josh Friedman to SALT Talks. Uh, Josh is the co-founder, co-chairman, and co-CEO of Canyon Partners, which is a leading global alternative asset management firm specializing in value-oriented investments for endowments, foundations, pensions, sovereign wealth funds, and other institutional investors. Uh, Josh sort of has the cream of the crop in terms of his educational background. He graduated uh, from Harvard College. He got his bachelor's degree, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa in physics from Harvard College. Uh, he graduated with a master's degree from Oxford University with honors in politics and economics, where he was a Marshall Scholar. He also graduated from Harvard Law School, uh, magna cum laude, and Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar. Uh, prior to Canyon, Josh was a director of capital markets at Drexel Burnham. Uh, and prior to Drexel, he worked in mergers and acquisitions at Goldman Sachs. Uh, he serves on several boards, including the board of directors of Harvard Management Company. He's also a member of Harvard's Committee on University Resources, the Harvard Business School Board of Dean, uh, Dean's Advisors, and the Harvard University Task Force on Science and Engineering. Uh, Josh is a trustee for the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, Caltech, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Uh, he serves on the investment committees for uh, the Broad Foundation and the J. Paul Getty Trust, and chairs the Caltech and LACMA uh, investment committees. Uh, Josh also serves on the board of the UCLA Hospital Department of Neurosurgery and the UCLA Anderson School of Management. So we're extremely excited to welcome Josh uh, to SALT Talks today. Reminder, if you have any questions for Josh during the course of today's talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting today's interview, as we've done with most of these SALT Talks, is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. I'm going to turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview. Hey, John, thanks very much. And I'm happy that you're not wearing your star-spangled suit for this SALT conference that you were wearing on the 4th of July because Josh Friedman and I, we don't dress like that, okay? It's just not in our DNA as Jews and Italians to dress like that, but that's a separate topic. Josh, uh, welcome to the program. I think, uh, I, I, think I, I want to I state this. Uh, we made an investment in your fund April 1st. Congratulations on your performance since April 1st. Uh, obviously, Skybridge and its investors are super happy about that. John went over your background, but I want you to take us back a little bit uh, to, you know, where you grew up, what, what your parents were like, and why you decided to go in this direction career-wise. And then, obviously, we can talk a little bit about the portfolio and what you're doing now. Sure. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks very much. I should just mention that if that list of extracurricular activities looked a little long, it was because I've actually rotated off a couple of those positions, and I apologize for not updating that before this discussion. But um, by, by way of background, so I grew up outside of Boston. Um, my, my dad was not college educated, but managed and grew up in a very poor household. And uh, my mother was a school teacher. My dad ended up being a, a non-college graduate engineer, basically. 
because um, he was a smart guy. And he really had dreams of me being an entrepreneur. And I was pushed educationally, which is pretty typical for that era, uh, particularly in our type of household. So I was pushed from the time I was a little kid to go to uh, Harvard and Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. And then I was told, you have to have your own business. Don't work for other people because that's the formula for success and for job satisfaction. Um, and what, uh, what town in Boston are you from, Josh? I didn't really you're from. I was, grew, I was born in Natick and then we moved to Wayland. Um, okay. It was where you moved if you were Jewish. So you're, you're the second most per famous person from Natick, right? We know Doug Flutie's from Natick, right? You remember there Doug? There you go, absolutely. Uh, th th there's a bunch of actually uh, money managers from that, from that area. Um, Steve Paliuka's from Framingham, which is the next town over. Jim Breyer's from Weston, which is the fancy town next to Wayland. Right. But, you know, it was your basic uh, Boston suburb. But uh, from the time I was a kid, my dad, I was being pushed for education, education, education. But my dad also really planted a seed in my head that you had to have your own, that I had to have my own business. And I, I think that was, I, I pretty much did everything my dad said, even though he didn't know the name of a single Wall Street firm. And even though he didn't really have the background to give that guidance, it was just terrific guidance for me and my personality. So I, I, I somehow thought I'd be a tech entrepreneur out on Route 128, where there are all these startups. I was a physics, electronics, gadget guy. And then um, I, I somehow got lured into Wall Street at Goldman Sachs. But the entrepreneurial bug gave me, I think, the confidence to leave Goldman after a couple of years and join Drexel, which was doing the most entrepreneurial things on Wall Street. Every client was someone who didn't really have the money but wanted to dream big and make a company better and create value. And that's what we were doing, was facilitating those deals. And then when the opportunity arose, I started Canyon. I, I didn't want to have a conventional job after Drexel, after Drexel vanished because I figured this was my chance. And I partnered with my old law school and business school roommate who was also at Drexel, Mitch Tulis. Mitch was a bankruptcy lawyer. We sort of knew, we, we liked investing in really complex value-oriented situations. That's, that's what we were involved with at Drexel. And so that's what we did. Um, we didn't know what we were doing initially when we started the business. We had a choice. Could you do a private equity fund? Could you do a mutual fund? Or could you do a hedge fund? And we didn't really know anything about raising money or how to do it. So we rounded up some money from friends and family. And we started uh, with about $17 million as in the hedge fund format because the mutual fund format was too liquid in terms of the liabilities uh, for us to manage the types of strategies we wanted to do. And we really didn't know how to raise private equity money anyway, although some of those types of products came later, later in our career. But that well, was I've how- heard, I've heard you say that you're an alternative credit investor. You're not really a hedge fund manager. So describe that to our viewers and listeners. What do well, you mean by that? That's a good question. I, I don't love the term hedge fund because it really refers to a fee structure more than it refers to a strategy. And there are as many different types of hedge funds from global macro to, you know, equity long short to everything in between to quantitative, et cetera. So I, I just think of what we do with the assets and the format happens to be one that's consistent in terms of liquidity profile and fee structure, where I think we can justify uh, our existence uh, quite well to investors and also have less of a liquidity mismatch. If you, so you have to really look at what is it that we do? What is alternative credit? What it means is that we really try to focus on things that are a little out of the box, that are unusual situations, generally speaking, things that are less easily accessed by conventional investors who are say mutual fund um, or ETFs or, or other more siloed types of investors. 
So we like things where there's a lot of change and with change, there's a lot of complexity and with complexity, there's an opportunity to create a dollar for 50 cents or 40 cents or 60 cents or 80 cents, but hopefully less than a dollar. So we like bankruptcies where there's a complicated process of fixing the balance sheet. Uh, sometimes there are, um, there's, sometimes there's litigation and there's uh, challenging of rights and, 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 uh, and, and priorities within a capital structure. So we like bankruptcy, we like distressed. We like when things don't fit conventional buyers. So for example, mutual funds might be only allowed to buy things that are in the high yield index. Now they might be an active manager and they might try to change the weightings, but when something falls out of the index because it's upgraded or something enters the in index because it's downgraded from IG, all of a sudden there's a lot of buying and selling. And that buying and selling doesn't necessarily have to do with deep analysis of the securities. It has to do with the mandate of the purchaser. So we like when there's that kind of complexity, when things fall out of indices, when things get put in indices, we're looking for catalysts and we're looking for an alignment of incentives. We often work directly with sponsors uh, to structure very complicated solutions to problems that they face that the general capital markets don't allow them to solve. So we're operating in this world of, of what I would call complex credit and across a variety of asset classes from structured assets such as CLO tranches or RMBS or CMBS or other kinds of ABS to uh, more conventional high yield, to bank loans, to unfunded revolvers, to all sorts of different types of securities. So does that make us a hedge fund? Well, I, in format, we're a hedge fund, but I don't think of us as a traditional hedge fund. And by the way, we do hedge also. We have significant short positions from time to time in different indices or in individual securities. But, but I'm not ever really sure what the name hedge fund means. So I'd rather call us an alternative credit firm no, or a it, it, value firm. It makes firm. sense. Jo Josh, you made a recent investment. You sent me a press release. I think it's a great example of what you do. And it fits our space because Skybridge, our fund, we have a nice size position in your fund, but we also own a lot of structured credit. And you made an investment in a mortgage servicing company recently. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that opportunistically, how you feel about structured credit and mortgages and why you made that investment. We've always had a lot of deep expertise in the ABS area. We've invested um, double digit millions in the infrastructure of the firm to, to service that area. Um, it was a very opportunistic and great area when RMBS blew up in the, in the, in the middle part of the last decade and particularly um, uh, around actually around 2012 when Maiden Lane came along and government was selling its securities and there was cheap value. Also before that, we started our investment in that area really in 2007. But um, what we did recently is a good example. We had a changing capital market. We had COVID drive a hole in the markets and a, and, and a liquidity hole as well as a value hole. And there were many, many uh, players out there. And I know we've talked about a number of them and we've both with you and with uh, some of the senior members of your team where um, investors in their search for yield in a environment of shrinking yield had leveraged up uh, mortgage securities and asset-backed securities and mortgage servicing rights and servicer advances and both agency and non-agency mortgage, but with big leverage. And a lot of time there was a mismatch. So the mismatch meant that in order to produce a yield, they had used low cost repo financing from commercial banks, which can be pulled at any moment to purchase securities that weren't all that liquid. So when the value started to, to diminish, 
a lot of the repo lenders pulled their lines. And we saw this in different types of entities. And we looked at a post-pandemic, there, there was just the initial crash of the wave where we saw a number of these opportunities. Some were just real estate loans that were leveraged up 80%. Some were combinations of mortgage servicing rights, et cetera, like the one that we discussed. And we like that because the complexity means we have less, less, less competition. And the challenge for that sponsor in that situation was, how do I stop the banks from forcing me to sell my portfolio down at really bad prices at the worst possible time? So that sponsor did some of that and it cost them. But then the comp concept was if we can put in a senior secured loan that picks up the residual value in every one of those lines, maybe we can get the banks to stand still. They can term out that repo lending. Now, all of a sudden, the selling stops and there's so much more optionality on the equity. This is a public equity um, that it's going to become a self-fulfilling, almost like a flywheel. You stop the selling. You can then originate new loans in a market where prices are cheaper and there, there can be big positive accretion to the value of the equity, and that's more cushion under our loan. So, I mean, there, there's basically an inflection point here, right? Because the cascade of selling, uh, people like you and I are opportunistic. We see that as an opportunity to buy as, a, as opposed to an opportunity to panic out of the position. And so you made a very nice size investment there, and you have optionality into the equity as well as you're getting a coupon. Is that yeah, there are, there are two ways to play these, as, as you rightly point out. One way is you just buy the things people are selling. And you can, we did some of that, too, in our funds, um, although it was hard because it was, it was quick and there wasn't as much liquidity as we'd like to buy big pieces. Um, the other way to invest is take a structure that is suffering from this and stabilize it. So we made a stabilizing loan. It was in uh, the low teens at a little discount to par, uh, senior secured, and we also got an awful lot of warrants struck on the common stock. Half of them were struck at the money at that time. And because we knew that once this deal was announced, the market would say, ah, their balance sheet is now stable. They don't have to sell anything. And in fact, they have the firepower to buy things. That would sort of cause the stock to move up and we'd get to participate through those warrants in addition to getting to participate uh, by having a very good debt security. So it's exactly what you said. We wanted to have the upside that our debt was creating um, and, and create, did a sort of a creative custom solution. The, the other point that's really important on this one, Anthony, that I would mention is that I think the nature of distressed investing, this entire cycle will be a little bit different from what it was in the prior cycle. In prior cycles, there were, well, other than the fact that in the last decade, most of the distressed were kind of bad companies with bad balance sheets, we can come to that later. I think a lot of the distressed investing traditionally was you buy debt, if it goes down, you buy more, you buy more, you buy more, you then face off and have a fight with the sponsor and it's sort of like a loan to own. We're gonna have a big battle with whoever the old control player was because we own the debt, they own the equity and you know we're gonna try to win and control the company. I think there are gonna be many, many more situations because the sponsors have so much capital themselves where the opportunity is to go in to price a solution in partnership with the sponsor to fix the balance sheet. And if they wanna play along in that security once we've negotiated and priced it, we're, that's perfect for them because they have that capital, but they can't simply do it themselves. And no, it makes sense, but let me ask you a follow-up on that though. You, these companies, many of them were performing very well in the three and a half percent unemployment environment and the US economy growing at 2.4%. 
And so there wasn't necessarily a bad business. It's just they got stopped by the COVID-19 crisis. Are, are these companies getting enough help from the government? So it's an interesting distress cycle in the sense that even some of these companies that you're willing to work with, they could be getting some capital help from the government too. So doesn't that provide a rocket boost in some ways? It does. And there's a difference. Maybe if I could take one step back and maybe just talk about the different, the environment going into COVID and, and then it'll make sense because I think the government can't possibly solve some of the balance sheet problems. The government can solve liquidity problems in the market. That's what the Fed essentially does. They're, they're buying securities. They're giving the market confidence. They're encouraging people to essentially um, front run them by getting in front of the wave of purchases of the Fed by purchasing new securities, whether in the primary market or the secondary market. And that's a useful function. But they can't, the Fed can't fundamentally fix a balance sheet that's too leveraged. Going into COVID, and this is what I want, taking a step backwards, the pre-COVID environment was a really stretched environment for credit. Um, we had had 10 years of increasing employment, decreasing unemployment, 10 years of economic expansion, 10 years of declining interest rates. So there was this global hunt for yield. And the US was sort of the best market for that because yields were negative in other countries. And so what happened as a result, because of all the pensions and endowments and foundations and, and retirees and others who want yield and don't necessarily have a mission or a mandate to be in the equity markets, the, the debt markets were getting really heated up. And corporate debt as a percentage of GDP was at an all-time peak going into the pandemic. We had um, the highest debt to EBITDA ratios we had ever seen, period. Um, we'd had the highest percentage of deals that were using adjusted EBITDA. So, so we were getting prospectuses to look at that didn't even really have EBITDA. They had all sorts of adjustments to make EBITDA look higher than it actually was. Um, we had an explosion of triple B debt within the investment grade universe. So the lowest grade of investment grade became the largest part of that universe. And we also had um, an, a complete abandonment of covenants, both in, in bonds and in bank debt. 85% of bank debt roughly was covenant light, which really meant no covenants. So the, the, the market was ripe for an adjustment in the debt markets um, because people were, if you're, if, you're, if you're a passive fund and you get an inflow and you're trying to mimic the high yield index, you have to buy something. So it's not a question of you carefully assessing every credit. You have to look like the index and then you can figure out maybe I'll overweight this and underweight that. So this drive of capital was kind of driving prices up, driving yields down, driving covenants down. And in parallel, the private equity universe was exploding. So the private equity issuers were taking advantage of this and leveraging up everything. So it was kind of poised for an adjustment. When the pandemic hit, um, you immediately had revenues go to zero in so many businesses. And, and I just don't believe that the private equity partner who was doing a deal a year prior to the pandemic or two years prior was telling the associate, please run the pro forma with zero revenue for three months, followed by you know, an environment with double digit unemployment and a slow recovery. So I, I think that there are a lot of balance sheets today that are really stressed. And right now they're trying to get from here to there, get to the end of this pandemic, get to a point where they have better visibility and then try to revive themselves. But, but 
And, and that sort of gets to your question, is the, has the government fixed that? Well, there's a difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Yeah, the, 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 the special loans that become forgiven and things of that sort are helpful, but really the Fed's activity and most of the government's activity generally was immediate, it was massive, it was significant, but it was all designed to restore liquidity in the capital markets to help those big employers, the ones who are cuspy in terms of investment grade or who are in businesses like the airline business or the cruise business or whatever, but employ a lot of people, let the capital markets heal by telling everybody, yeah, we're gonna be in there buying. And, and, and they did that. But what they don't do is fix a balance sheet that is fundamentally overly levered in a world that's fundamentally a slower world. So, so therefore, there are tremendous opportunities in what you're doing. Uh, some of that dislocation, your fund experience, but then you were adept in being very opportunistic and running towards some of the fires uh, that were going on in the markets, which is why you've had such great performance since April. I think it's important to, you know, I, I, I think we, we probably got caught more off guard than we should have in the first quarter, particularly because yeah. of what the type of disruption that occurred. And it was, we had more maybe COVID central businesses are particularly hurt by that. Yeah, but, ourselves uh, too. But, but if you have the right kind of capital and the right kind of investors and you have a contrarian mindset, um, it, it lets you feel comfortable running toward, toward the fire, if you will. And, and there was really a series of fires as opposed to a single fire. And we talked about the first one was, was okay, the Fed's coming to the rescue. Let's run in front of the Fed before they do their buying. And what did the Fed do? They stabilized the money market funds. They then came in with this, the, the, the secondary market purchase programs. Um, and and the, those programs were designed really to address the IG market and the, and the recently downgraded IG companies. Um, and, and, it was, and that allowed people like Boeing and Ford and, and so many other issuers to come to market because investors said, ah, even if the Fed hasn't really started buying yet, they're gonna be there. They're telling you they're going to be there. And the Fed wanted it that way because they, they prefer the secondary market do the work for them anyway. So that worked in a really powerful and important way. The secondary market corporate credit facilities hit high yield indices too and ETFs. I think the Fed may be the second largest holder of the Fidelity ETF now. So they've become big purchasers. Um, and today they had an announcement that if the market continues to be this robust, maybe they'll back off a little. So we'll see. But if it, did, but if it doesn't, they'll be right back there. So, so the, the first wave was, was kind of front run the Fed, buy high yield, buy IG. That's more of a trade than investment, not really necessarily what we do um, a lot of. The, the second phase was absolutely in these, in these balance sheets that were, um, that were in trouble, that were kind of pushed over the edge by, by COVID. And there were two types. One was the ABS type things that had repo financing because the banks all of a sudden pulled their horns in. And again, this was a small part of this year's, this year's cycle. It was a huge part of the cycle in 2008. Um, the banks were much more leveraged. They pulled a lot in in 08 in the global financial crisis. This time they weren't, they had better balance sheets, but they definitely got conservative on their repo financing. And so we saw, and, and we still see mortgage loans that are subject to leverage. We saw a lot of ABS. We saw some of these companies that focused on these structured credit, but with a lot of leverage. The other part of that, that phase um, 
were the, where I said companies were kind of on the edge getting pushed over, were the companies that were already in trouble. The Neiman Marcus, J. Crew, J.C. Penney, et cetera, Brooks Brothers, you know, where there are dip loan opportunities, et cetera. Not really necessarily the best opportunities in my view. Those were more taken advantage of people who had already been hurt by being in those credits. So they were already in the credit and they say, ah, oh, we'll, we'll do the dip loan. And they're trying to take advantage of the fact that some of their, some of their, uh, uh, of their partners in the old debt are not allowed to put up the dip loan. So if they make it really juicy, they can get a bigger percentage of it. A little bit of that going on. The next thing and the more interesting thing is, is the credits that just traded badly or the ones that are now starting to show weakness because the, the environment still is quite weak. We've got double digit unemployment. The balance sheet doesn't have staying power. And this requires more patience. So there, were the, there was sort of a quick reflex, get right in there and react to those, those first ones. And now we're in a cycle that I think will take a material amount of time to play out because a lot of the sponsors, a lot of the PE firms are saying, let me just get through the summer and then I've got to figure out how I'm going to fix this. Makes, it, ma it makes great sense, Josh. And the, uh, you left out structured credit. So I'm just curious of what your opinion is there. Obviously, the Fed bought AAA tranches and new issues and things like that. Um, but that seems to have lagged the other credits that you're mentioning. What, do you have an opinion there? Well, I think the structured credit was great at the very beginning. Like instantly, you saw tranches of aircraft securitizations and, and real estate securitizations and servicing rights and all those securitizations. Um, but they tend to be smaller tranches, less liquid, less of it actually traded. If you could fix the overall balance sheet, you stop the selling. Now, like in the case of the deal we did, they were initially selling way down. As soon as they stabilized the balance sheet, termed out the repo, that was the end of that. We're still seeing leveraged real estate loans in, in higher supply than we've ever seen. So that's, so that's good. But uh, um, I think that cycle will continue. I, I, I absolutely expect it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a large market. Um, a lot of the tranches that trade, trade in small size. It requires a lot of discipline and, and, and patience. But if you're willing to pick up pieces here and pieces there, and you have the analytics to be able to quickly process a lot of names, I think it's still a very good market. I, I like that market a lot. It's not as, it's, it's not as uh, cheap as it was before all the Fed activity, which, but that, that's true of all the markets right now. Yeah, well, I mean, some some of that's true, but I mean, it's these CRTs and some of the uh, the other stuff, you know, basically the plain vanilla mortgage-backed securities are still lagging uh, because of the threat of mortgage delinquencies. I think that's where the meteor strike was. People said, oh my God, we're going into our homes. We're going to have 25% unemployment and 25% mortgage delinquencies. And so what you described about repo lines being pulled happened to the mortgage REITs, happened to some of our friends uh, in the industry that went down 40 to 70% during the crisis. Yeah, the leverage, the guys who had leverage on those securities. Yeah, no, exactly. Got destroyed. Exactly. I think also, to some extent, that while there's a lot of paper floating out there, some of it is still being offered at prices that are too high because they don't have quite the urgency that they had before. And the other thing, and some of it's low quality, and I also think that there's a certain amount of uncertainty in real estate valuation generally, where it's, it's at least from our point of view, a little bit unknowable. You know, multifamily is one thing, particularly in places where it's supply constrained. Um, you know, commercial, do we really know 
what residential, uh, oh, sorry, what uh, office demand is going to be yep. forward when everybody's working from home. And there's the yeah. pull of you need more space per employee, but you need less space. You know, we, we agree. I mean, those trends have accelerated. That's one of the reasons why we sold out of some of our community banking exposure that was tied to commercial office buildings and retail strip centers. But I think you know, we're very constructive and very positive on the tranches of mortgages in white collar communities, affluent communities where uh, they're the primary home of the resident. And those residents, frankly, are able to work remotely and keep their jobs. So that's where we see Still a tremendous opportunity, but I, I want to switch gears before I bring John into the equation and get some questions from the the audience. You've seen a lot of different scenarios in your career on Wall Street, three decade plus career on Wall Street, ups and downs, 87 crash, the David Askin crisis in 94, the long-term capital management crisis, 98, obviously the global financial crisis. How is this different? the COVID-19 crisis of 2020, how does it compare and how do you think it ends? First of all, I, I think um, every, every crisis has certain things in common. We always think it's different. We always think it feels like the end of the world and it always comes back and it always comes back strong. Um, this one's compounded by political uncertainty, by uh, social uncertainty. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, unique characteristics to this, to this particular, particular crisis. And, and it hits hard and it hits deep and it has taken out of business a lot of small main street businesses. But people wanna come back. So I, 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 like to be, I, I like to think of myself as an optimist generally, but part of our job is, as credit investors is to be a cynic also. So we're kind of in between. Um, look, the COVID crisis will pass somehow. It'll either pass because there's excellent treatment because there's uh, essentially uh, it passes through the community and enough people have immunity that it doesn't spread and becomes a more permanent fixture, but at a lower level like the flu, or because we come up with a good, um, a, a good, uh, a good vaccine. And all, all these might take longer and there might be ups and downs in between, but if you see beyond that, it will pass. I don't think we really know the effect of the staggering amount of fiscal and monetary policy um, that has just been undertaken. And, and I think that we should be a little bit humble in our, in our um, confidence about what it means when you have the Fed be this active and the Treasury be this, this active. Um, Stan Druckenmuller had some interesting comments on that, those issues, as have others. But at the end of the day, the, the catalyst for this particular disruption will pass. But, but we still had certain things going on before that. We had over-exuberance in the debt markets. We had um, private equity become the asset class of choice and therefore leverage applied across the universe. We had an, ex an enormous amount of capital raised by private equity firms for other activities like rescue financings and so forth. Yet when you talk to private equity firm number one, the last person he wants to talk to about doing the rescue financing is private equity firm number two, which is good for us because we're sort of a neutral party in that, in that equation. We're not, a, we're not threatening and we're not, we're not in their competitive business. We're more of a partner. So I think that what will happen is eventually we'll see the COVID part go away. We'll be left with a huge headache in the economy because we have a lot of unemployment. It will take some time to get the animal spirits back. 
as you know, markets are psychological animals. And when people put their hands in their pockets and don't make capital expenditures and there's uncertainty, it has a self-reinforcing no way. It, it cycles, you know, the panic cycles. I mean, people are, uh, you know, Josh, Lee Cooperman was my old boss and you've met Lee many times, obviously, and we've had dinner together at the SALT conference. One of his best lines that I often repeat, everybody is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. And then they strike a match to their hair and they run around in a circle. And so I applaud you for being a contrarian and having the wisdom to see through the current cycle to the other side. I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey, who's not wearing his star spangled sports jacket. I mean, you would never wear some Friedman. You would never be caught dead in the jacket that Dorsey was wearing on the 4th of July, but let's leave it at that. And uh, John, what, what are the questions from the outside? Yeah, the first question, Josh, is about, you know, how long is this particular market going to stay around where it's such a rich environment for the type of distressed credit investing that you do? And what are the different phases of that opportunity set? Well, I think I, I went through this a little bit. There was the initial front run the Fed, buy high yield, buy IG, just buy anything. That's over. That, that's happened. Um, spreads are still, by the way, quite a bit wider than they were at the beginning, but maybe appropriately so. Um, I, I think that, and, and the other phases, you know, the ABS phase, the, the private equity uh, deals that we realize suddenly don't work. I think that this last phase, the, the, the sort of um, good company, bad balance sheet phase. And remember, pre-COVID, pre most of the distress was energy, metals and mining, shipping, and of course, retailing. And maybe uh, tech companies from the old tech world that didn't transition to the cloud. So they were basically companies that had fundamental problems with the value of their business and their competitive position. Post-COVID, um, because of all the private ac equity activity and all the re-leveraging, um, there, there are now a lot more companies that have balance sheets that aren't appropriate to even a slightly slower economic environment. Remember, we had 3.5% unemployment going into this, and now we've got double-digit unemployment. And, and I think that takes a while to work through. I think it'll take three, four, five years. And, and I think we'll see, in terms of the opportunity set, it won't be that super rich, every, every fish that goes by you looks like a good one to catch. It's gonna be, okay, here's a good company with a bad balance sheet uh, that was interrupted by this. Here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. And you're starting to see companies of that ilk from Acorn to Travelport to Legato to others that have very good businesses potentially. Um, not potentially, they have very good businesses, but COVID created a situation where the balance sheet didn't work. I think you'll see a lot more of those, but, it, but they will show up a little slower. They'll show up intermittently, but there'll be some large and very good companies that just don't have the staying power. So the phases, some, some of the phases were really quick, as we described. You know, the, the trading ones, the, some of those ABS structures, the repo-driven things, some of the initial companies that were on the edge that just got pushed over. Uh, but now we're in, this, in the more patience will be rewarded market. And I think it'll go for a while. And I also think you're in a market where a lot of capital has been gathered. And that's, in a way, not a bad thing. Because it means that the, a lot of the PE firms that have gathered that capital will be looking for partners to help price a solution to their deal where they can then co-invest in it. They can't price a solution to their own deal. They're conflicted. 
So if, if you look at the March drawdown that took place in some of these structured credit markets and, and markets that are now in distress, what do you think the time frame is for recovering some of those technical losses that took, took place because of you know, tightened repo requirements and things of that nature? Most of those were, are, are, well, a lot of those particular ones have recovered a lot already. Um, some of them will not recover because they were forced by the nature of their balance sheet to sell at the bottom. That's the worst ones. You know, a lot of those repo driven structures are, are really not in a good position to recover value because they had to shrink the balance sheet so significantly just to get to stability. And now with the Fed's supercharging of the markets, there's maybe less opportunity for them to grow back to where they were. They don't want to necessarily have the same tenuous balance sheet, but the big spread additional originations they could do will be harder when the, when the Fed is driven spread so low. But I think a lot of that is this year's is this year's business. A lot of it's happened already. So uh, Canyon is a global firm. As, as you look at the opportunity set, are you focused mainly in the United States or what do you view the opportunity set and the risks, frankly, of places like China, Asia, and other emerging and then developed markets in Europe? Sure, and we, and we do have an office in, in Hong Kong, and we have an office in, uh, uh, in London and uh, in Tokyo. Um, when you're a credit investor, the most important thing that you need is rule of law so that you have a predictability in the restructuring process. Um, in China, you have two issues. One is, you know, history's not been your friend in terms of being a creditor. And that's true, by the way, in most non-US jurisdictions, except for maybe Western Europe. However, um, there was a lot of progress and a lot of desire to create normalized capital markets. But now you've, you've also got that being interrupted a bit with politics. So um, <clears throat> I would say we are likely to feel like at our size, which is, you know, large but not overwhelming, if you want to think of our firm that way, um, we have the scale to be sophisticated and participate in these complex and, and you know, good size, critical mass, stable types of vehicles um, and companies. But I, I don't think we're so large that we feel like, oh my God, we have to be everywhere. So I would expect that the non-US activity would be a pretty small percentage of what we do going forward because there's more than enough here. And I think the US probably uh, was hit a little bit harder uh, with COVID in some respects. And even there were two hits. One is COVID itself and two is the political response to COVID. And between the two of them, it's been very costly to a lot of businesses. So I think that presents a lot of opportunities here. Europe actually has been, Western Europe and the UK in particular has been an area for a lot of activity for us in the stressed, stressed and distressed area recently. Our experience is that that's been more lumpy and it comes and goes. What we won't do is access, you know, kind of smaller illiquid niches in the markets. A lot of people did um, leveraged NPLs in Spain and Italy. And I, I just think that you don't have to stretch for those kinds of things to earn a good yield in today's world. The next question relates to sectors within the high yield market. You know, thematically, as you look through high yield, are there certain sectors that you like that you know, fit that good business, bad balance sheet due to the pandemic? Are the others that you view as bad business, bad balance sheet? So just go through within high yield, what sectors you think are particularly attractive and which ones you're really steering clear of? Retail, there's a lot of things going on. There were filings yesterday, Lucky uh, Brands filed. I mean, these, 
but I, I don't think that's an area where we're likely to do a lot except occasionally at the very top of the capitalization, you know, um, last in, first out type financing, but that's, that'll be rare. It's just the, the reasons are so basic and fundamental in terms of the displacement of the business that we all know about. Energy is an area where I would say it's the one area, particularly, we, we, well, there's upstream energy itself, and there's more downstream, midstream energy services, et cetera. Um, I, I think uh, while we, we certainly made a, a good attempt to avoid oil price-driven securities or energy price-driven securities, even the services companies, um, you know, drillers and others, they're almost all in restructuring today. And I think that offers a lot of one-sided, upsided optionality at the prices they trade at because they trade for nothing. Um, they, they trade for drill bits. <laughs> it's a bad pun, but they sort of do. And, and, there's, and, there's, and, and these are the best assets in the world, and many of them are working if you look at something like Transocean. But um, I, I'm, I'm just not sure that I would make a lot of new investments in that area today just because I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to decouple it from commodity pricing. Um, I think that the software area is a great area because there's lots of change, lots of transition, some companies growing, some not. Uh, the complexity and the technical knowledge required is a bit of an entry barrier against certain other players who participate in it. So we like that area a lot. Um, travel and leisure um, is, I think, a really interesting area, but one where you have to be cautious because we don't know about the near-term effects of resurgence, et cetera, but it's an area we know well. And I think there may well be opportunities that are interesting there that are somewhat hedgeable as well. Um, and, and then there are sort of the bro other broad categories, which I think is just, I think the, the stress levels will be, will be spread across a variety of industries. And I'd say on the other ones, we're pretty agnostic. We'll see what, we'll see what shows up. All right, the last question, and it's a broad question before I turn it back over to Anthony for a final word is, if you are a, a institutional investor or a family office or an RIA right now, and you're looking out through the marketplace, obviously equities have largely rebounded from, from the March sell-off. Where do you see the best value in the marketplace today? I think there's merit in going one step beyond, you know, we, we do what we do. So we, we can't opine on what others are doing, whether they're doing quant strategies or doing, you know, equity long, short, et cetera. Um, there's no question the equity markets have, re, have rebounded very strongly, especially given the reality on the street. Uh, and, and a lot of that is driven by the Fed. And, and the, in a zero interest rate environment where you can't just go and buy IG bonds and sleep at night and say, okay, I'm beating inflation, doesn't really work. So you, you have to figure out something that's different. And, and I think, you know, our response to that is to look at these situations that are complex, they're in flux, and they don't fit into the general categories of, you know, broad high yield, broad investment grade, broad, broad municipals, broad whatever. Because I think those general categories are exactly what the Fed has driven the yield out of. So there's not a lot of attractive risk return in owning those types of index exposures and the equity markets have fully recovered essentially. So what do you do? So I think there are compromises where you don't give up all your liquidity, like being in a, you know, in a, in a private equity type of structure where you're tied up for 10 years, but you're in more intermediate liquidity structure um, where you can take advantage of the 
the disruptions and, and disequilibria and the bumps in the road and the shifts among asset classes and the downgrades and upgrades and things of that sort that provides you kind of debt-like surrogates uh, for your money uh, with, you know, call it returns that have an expectation of being quite substantially higher than high yield, quite substantially higher than uh, what, what is probably discounted in, in, in the IG high yield and even equity markets today. So I think looking at alternatives today is a, is a, wise, is a, is a wise discipline. Fantastic, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm going to turn it back over to Anthony if he has a final word. Well, well, Josh, I just want to uh, thank you uh, for being with us, but more importantly, thank you for uh, being our partner. Uh, uh, Skybridge and our funds are usually excited to uh, take this journey with you over the next uh, several years, and uh, we're all off to a great start. So I want to thank you uh, for joining us all talk here. You've been to the SALT conference before. You've been to our uh, wine party in Davos. I hope we can get you back to one of our live events, Josh, and I hope those live events happen pretty soon. I thank hope you so again. Too. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anthony, and, and thank you, John.